All right. Well, welcome to the Wild Podcast. Today's session is called the HR Reformation. I'm Dr. Daniel Halleck, and I'm with Dr. Rob McKenna, my partner in crime, the CEO and founder of Wild Leaders, creator of the Wild Toolkit, our system for repeatable and scalable whole and intentional leader development. He's been a professor for over 25 years and has been a consultant at places like Microsoft, Boeing, Children's Hospital, and a range of other clients across the country and globally. And we're really excited today. We are joined by our friend of the firm, Michael Erisman. He's a friend of the Wild team. He's the recent chief people officer at Pushpay. He's also been the VP of HR at DocuSign. And he's led in executive and leadership roles at a host of places like Microsoft, H&R Block, Pepsi, General Electric, some of the small companies you all might be familiar with. <laughs> um, and I'm excited today because um, not only is Michael, a friend of our firm, we've known him for a while, and he has a, a background in industrial and organizational psychology as well. But Rob and Michael are going to bring some interesting complementary perspectives today and how we reform or form differently the way we develop leaders and the way we approach our work from the human resource or people function. Rob has been uh, on the external side mostly, and Michael has led from the inside out, and so they're going to bring some great perspectives today. Before we jump in, though, it wouldn't be a wild podcast if we didn't do some wild questions. And so, um, <laughs> as you know, I've got a deck of wild cards with some wild questions. And so I, I've shuffled through and I've got a couple cards for you today. And so I'm going to start with you, Rob. So, Rob, here, here's my question to you. Um, just light afternoon dialogue. What is the unique contribution that you bring to every team? I constantly think about scale and sustainability. Like I constantly, I can't help. I'm like, I don't know, Michael, if you know this about me, but we've talked about this, but I'm just, and it comes up in all kinds of specific ways, Daniel, I think that you've seen, I think that's, but I think it's a I good thing it. that people, at first people feel, feel like my, my, my family even calls me practical Patty. So like, they're always like, Oh, you know, you're afraid I'm going to fall off the wall when my kids were little. And I'm like, no, it's because I, we don't have the time to go to the hospital right now. We're having too much fun together. So there's a sense of, but I think that that in a leadership role, but then on the. Okay, Michael, here's, here's, here's your fun surprise question. What would change if, <laughs> I love this. Uh, I'm gonna answer this question for myself at some point. What would change if you communicated more clearly and listened more effectively? What would change? Uh, you know, a number of things would change and primarily on the second part of that, which is the listen more effectively. I, I think my tendency is to think out loud, to, to, to actually think while I'm speaking, sort of create my uh, opinions while words are coming out of my mouth. You know, and I have a tendency to, to do that. It's a strength. It's, it's something that I bring to the table. I can articulate ideas. I can, I can set vision. I can connect the dots for people. But what would change if I listened more deeply is I would probably have a better perspective on how to land things. I'd, I'd probably have a more well-rounded perspective. I'd probably be more empathetic. I'd probably pick up and learn some things that, you know, I'm too busy acting and doing maybe to notice. Uh, so I think that's what would change. You know, again, if I think about those two I definitely struggle with listening way more than I struggle with speaking, uh, as you both uh, probably know about me. 
Uh, so that would definitely change. And, and I think it's, it's always a good thing to be thinking about. And you can learn a lot by silence. Mm. I don't mm. do silence particularly well, not because I'm uncomfortable with it, but just because there's so much stuff to talk about um, that uh, I can be impatient. So I think that's what would change. Uh, and I think it would all be positive if, if I were to do a better job of that. Yeah, that's great. I resonate with that too. My wife will often yeah. remind me to ask questions uh, if we're with friends. So <laughs> I love that. Um, so you both have some fun, long-time connections. Before we jump into the, the, the actual content here, could you both tell me, how do you both know each other? I think that's just kind of fun. One of the things that's interesting is that, because we became friends much later, in life and most people wouldn't know this but you and i know this that i went to junior high with your brother uh with your brother andrew and so i've known him for for years and then my wife actually worked for andrew and then i got to know uh your dad i've always known about you and didn't you know i think it's so cool now to know you because we sh we live in a world where we share a lot of kind of uh some passions and convictions um, coming at it from different angles, of course. And so that's what and I always think, like, maybe the time is right that we know each other now. I, I go back and your wife, uh, her maiden name is really close to my name. So she always showed up at SPU right next to my photograph in like the student director. <laughs> that's so and, right. And, you know, when they would put people in alphabetical order, I'd end up kind of, you know, meeting her and getting to know her. Uh, and so you and I have that connection. In fact, I think it was just a couple of years ago, I found this thing from SPU and it showed, it was a newspaper article and it showed intramural basketball. And I sent it to you because we mm -hmm. both listed in the scoring leaders for the week, but I had scored more points than you did. So I, I sent it over and- <laughs> Not surprising. <laughs> Um, but no, we've known each other for a long time. And I think what's really interesting about how we've kind of continued to develop this is ironically through a mutual friend, uh, Margo. Yeah. And we would go to her Christmas party every year, you know, and it'd be like all these people and, you know, and, and you and I would end up chit chatting and then I'd see you a year from a year later and a year later and a year later. Uh, and, you know, and, and again, just developed from there uh, that we had a natural comfort. We both have the same you know, background, although we pursued it in different ways, right? You've pursued yeah. it more on the academic side. I've pursued it more in these application side within, within companies, but it really mutually fit together. So For sure. one of those funny yeah. things where, you know, we've, we've known of, we've, we've been in orbit for decades and yeah. it's just it's been true. the last few years that we've really kind of taken it to the next level. And, and that's, you know, the, the timing is great. That's awesome. That's a, that's a, that's a great transition segue um, to my first question for you both. Um, and I'm going I'm to ask you both this question. But I'm going to ask Michael first. I asked you both in preparation for this. I didn't tell you what I was going to ask, but I asked you to read um, a white paper titled The 10 Scientific Truths of Whole and Intentional Leader Development. And my purpose was this. I wanted you to take a look at those 10 truths and share me which one or two of those most resonate with your experience when it comes to building structures for leading people effectively in organizations. And by the way, Michael, you're the one who inspired us to write that white paper. So I wanted to get your take first. I'm gonna start with you. Based on your experience, when you read that white paper, which, which principle or principles about whole and intentional leader development ring most true with you? 
Yeah, I mean, first of all, they're all 10 of them are great. If you haven't had a chance to check this out and you listen to this podcast, uh, go take a look at it. And, and I think there is fundamental truth to all of them. But the first one that hit me was the one that's the number one listed there, which is experience is the teacher. And, you know, one of the things that is really interesting about the way companies, and I've been working with these large companies, huge budgets, let's go train people, right? A lot of times when you think about employee development, you think about, okay, I'm going to send you to a course. Let me tell you what really happens. What really happens is I pull you out of your job. I spend a bunch of money. I send you to a course. I put you back into your job. And then I don't let you do anything I just trained you to do. That, that is about 90% of all training that ever happens in the workplace that is not specifically related to functioning or doing a task. And, and the challenge with that is it doesn't lend itself to growth. If you go back and talk to leaders who have built careers, right? There, there was a great study not too long ago about career derailment factors. Like why do some people grow their careers, keep climbing the ladder, some people derail at some point. If you ask anybody who's in a senior position, and people would ask me this all the time, right? If you become the chief people officer, you, you know, you've got 50 to 100 HR people working for you. They're like, how did you get to your job, right? One, almost 100% of the time, what you point to is I got thrown into a situation. I had no idea how to figure it out, and I had to go do it. I got asked to do something. I, I was presented with a set of challenges. I, they were real-life challenges. I had to learn on the fly. And here's what I learned. I learned what worked. I learned what didn't work. I learned how perspectives on what worked and what didn't work. You know, I've been blessed in my career to have been in situations where I'm in the field. So I'm, I'm the recipient of some Yahoo up at corporate sending out a bunch of edicts to do stuff. And you're like, well, this is never going to work. And I've been the, the person in, in corporate sending stuff to the field. Having the perspective on both sides is invaluable. When I, when I sit down and, and people come to me and say, um, you know, can you help me build my career? This happens all the time. Well, the first thing I'll ask them is, well, tell me where you want to go. Like, if you don't know where you want to go, any path is going to get you there. And so what I'll describe is they'll, they'll ask me, how did you get to where you are? And I'll tell you just a brief story. And, and this is why it's so important that it's about experience. I fell in love with HR about two months into the job. I got hired by GE. I was this HR generalist. I'd never done HR before. My dad, only advice he ever gave me was whatever you do, don't go into HR. So I ended <laughs> up into this HR role. That's a true story. I ended up in this HR role. And after about two months, I'm like, this is amazing. This is the greatest job ever. I'm getting, I'm doing all this stuff. It's, it's ticking every part of my brain. I'm doing analytics. I'm doing science stuff. I'm, I'm doing people things. I'm, you know, I'm legal stuff. It's fantastic. So I said, what would it, what would a career in HR look like? So I went to GE's website. I was working for GE. I found a job, vice president of HR for NBC sports. And I thought that would be a cool gig, right? I'll be up in Manhattan. I'll be hanging out with Bob Costas, whatever. So I printed that job description and keep in mind, this is a vice president at GE. I have two months of experience as an HR specialist. But I said, I want to do that job someday. So what I did was I printed the job description. It was three pages of stuff I needed to know how to do. And I carried that around with me for seven years. And my focus was, I need to know how to do this stuff. So if I saw something on the list and I figured out that our company did that, I raised my hand and said, hey, can I go work on that? I left GE and I went to Pepsi because I filled in about eight things that I could get at Pepsi that I wasn't going to get at GE. 
I left Pepsi to a dot-com no one's ever heard of. And everyone's like, you're insane. Why would you leave these great companies to go to this small thing? Well, guess what? I got to do M&A. I got to do international. I got to do a hundred things that I never would have gotten to do with those companies. The entirety of that. The reason I say I carried that around for seven years is seven years later, I got my first VP of HR job. But my focus was, I want, it's all about experience. It's not about, I don't care what my title is. I don't care what you pay me. What I care is what can I learn? And two things happen when you focus on experience being the real teacher. Number one is you're automatically in like the 95th percentile of all employees. If your whole objective is, I just want to contribute. I want to learn. I want to grow. Can I do that? Can I work on this? Automatically, you've, you've distinguished yourself from the vast majority of employees who unfortunately you know, we'll have a different approach. We'll be like, well, you know, I'm working harder than that person. And, you know, I want a junior, I'm on a senior title and none of that stuff matters. What matters is career capital and career capital is experience. What can you experience? And if you view the world through that lens, what's amazing is there's no downside to any situation. Anything that comes up, you learn from. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. I've made comical errors in my career. I have made decisions that were like, like, wow, I completely blew that one. And I learned from those decisions. I learned from those things. I learned what it felt like to get something from corporate. So when I was in corporate and I had to send stuff out to the field, I knew how to navigate it. So to me, that first one really rung true. You know, the second one was leaders are lonely. And what the only thing I wanted that I want to talk about with that is when you end up in a leadership position, something changes, but nobody ever tells you. We all view ourselves as, hey, it's just Michael and it's just Daniel. It's just Rob. I and mean, we're just showing up. We're just doing our job. Well, guess what? They give you a title. They throw VP in front of your title and people don't view you that as, as that anymore. But they view you as a vice president. You don't have carte blanche to just say whatever comes to mind because People will actually do that. I remember a situation one time at H&R Block and somebody on my team did something. I'm like, why did you do that? And he goes, well, you told me to. I'm like, when did I do that? He said, well, in this meeting. And I said, no, I was just brainstorming. <laughs> well, I'm the VP. And I said, well, what if we did this? And so they said, okay, and we're going to go do that. And that's the issue that causes loneliness. That's the reality that puts you in a situation where you have, to, you have to manage through that. You have to not take yourself too seriously, but you also have to respect that you're in a role. And by definition, that's a little lonely. The only other thing I will add to that just really quickly is I read something from a very unlikely source. And in, in, you know, I don't get political at all, but this was George W. Bush after 9-11. And he said something in his book and it blew my mind because I went like, oh my word, that's like every day of my life. What he said was, I realized after 9-11 that if we were attacked again, nothing I did would have been enough. But if we are not attacked again, everything I did was too much. And this illusion that somehow we can correlate the right decisions and the right efforts and the right intentions as producing the results that we expect is in fact the illusion. The reality is no matter what you do, there are gonna be people that don't like it, people that disagree, people that complain about it, and that's part of the gig. And, and by definition, that, that creates a sense of loneliness because you know, you're responsible to that. And the larger the role you have, 
the more that that's truth. So those are the two things. I think they're all great. Uh, Daniel, you guys did a phenomenal job setting that up. But those are the two ones that really pop for me. Well, there's it's an interesting connection between those two. I, well, Rob, I want to get your take as well. But there's an interesting connection between the experience because as you pr- pursue those experiences, as they develop you, as you grow, it also creates the isolation. And in many ways, the more risky or the more you have to lose in that situation, the more you need that support uh, around you at the same time. So that's really powerful, Michael. Thank you for sharing. That resonates with me hearing you share that from the stories I hear from other leaders as well. Rob, what about you? What one or two on there just grab you the most personally? If I could save my airtime, I wanted to go deeper on what Michael just said. If I like, we're in Congress right now, I could just save my airtime. Yeah. Uh, but I, one of the things that you said that was so interesting, because I was coming off a conversation with a dear friend of mine who's a, a senior leader, and I was talking to him about the content of the Wild Conversation next week, and it's on leading leaders. And I was curious, Michael, about your take on this, because I love the way you, when you said that, uh, I'm not going to get it right, but you just said, like, no one tells you what it's going to, what that's going to be like. I was talking, and so I thought, this is a friend of mine who has got a very senior leader responsibility. And I said, so I haven't, I've just begun to think about this. this something that I told him, I said, this is something that's been studied, like what it means to lead leaders as a key experience, like you just described. Mm-hmm. And so I said, there are things that we know certain predictable lessons emerge when someone starts leading leaders. And I said, how do you think about that? And what was, what was fascinating that's so true to many folks I talk with, uh, leaders who are in that space of either leading leaders or being leaders of leaders of leaders, you know what I mean? So now it's yeah. like, is, is how little time or space has been to intentionally preparing someone that th- to this moment that this is different for what it's going to be like, that no one tells you that because you get, and I know this is an old story. We've been beating this, this dead horse for a long time, but like that, you know, you get the results or you're technically strong. And so then they, you start leading people, but no one tells you what that's going to be quantitatively and qualitatively different than when you weren't. And so it was interesting listening because a lot of leaders, when they let you in on that kind of that conversation that they whisper out loud, that screams out inside of them is like, I need to be more intentional because something is different now. And even and we, he and I started to unpack like the power of like delegation, all the questions that come up around that, the, um, the issues of, of, the, of, of leading leaders who may have just come out of a really high productivity space as individual contributors. And now his job is really about inspiring those leaders and, and tr- training and developing them into what it means to like, we talked about the identity part of that. We talked about the delegation part of that. We talked about the, the investment that's necessary that so many people assume that a senior executive already knows how to do this stuff. Right. And I was curious, is that, is that a story you hear too? And Yeah, um, absolutely. Absolutely, Rob. In fact, um, there are two components that come up uh, in almost universally. And the first one is what they fail to tell you is that your struggle is not going to be intellectual. It's going to be emotional. Hmm. It's the emotions of living with uncertainty. It's the emotions of now you are responsible for things you do not control. It's the emotion of having your decisions and your, you know, you're the leader. People are looking at you for the answer. Whatever answer you provide, they're going to be critical of it. It's the emotional ability to manage through that that is the difference maker because, 
it's it's back to that adage of derailment factors, right? People who over rely on the success from the previous level into the next level, all of a sudden find that maybe that was 80% of my individual contributor role. It's only 10% now. So that's one component, but it's that emotional piece of it that is that is so difficult. And that's the thing that surprises people. Look, we are all phenomenal editors. We are all amazing critics. Any one of us can sit and have anything presented to us and, and shoot holes in it. But it's an entirely different emotional component when you're the one staring at a blank sheet of paper and have to come up with something that other people then get to criticize. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. the, that's the struggle. And, and that's, that's the thing that people really um, are challenged with. And there's an innate thing that comes out of that that is very natural. And it's a good thing. It's one of those... It's a characteristic that you want in a person, and yet it completely derails people. And that is, as a leader and a leader of leaders, you have to help your people to not rescue people, to not get emotionally uncomfortable and immediately seek an equilibrium where I feel better, which is I'm uncomfortable that I had to give this person some tough feedback I know they're going to go away and they're going to be upset and it's going to just take them a while. Am I comfortable just sitting in that for a while? Mm-hmm. Now am I comfortable in sitting with that in that times five times yeah. 10 times a hundred? Am I, am I going to just simply rescue my people away from the learning opportunities that other people provided us? Hmm. I'll give you a, a real quick story that I think might illustrate this. When I, when I got to this one company, the CEO pulled me aside and said, look, I got some real challenges with this SVP. Can you go work with him and, and tell me what you think? So I came back to him like two days later and I said, okay, I know what the issue is. He's like, what? How do you know? I sat down with him and I, and I just asked him a story. I said, how, you know, how'd you get, and the issue we had was, look, this guy's not acting like an SVP. He's still acting like a district manager. He's not acting like the person up here. And so I sat down with him and, and I said, Hey, tell me a little bit about, you know, how'd you get to this role? He goes, Oh yeah, I was, you know, I was this district manager, somebody, this one guy corporate, you know, he took a liking to me and he, you know, he, he threw me in this job. And then, you know, he walked me through his career and I looked at him, this whole conversation took 20 minutes. I looked at him and I said, you know, you're now that guy. You're not this guy anymore. You're that guy. You're the person that has to look into your team and make those decisions. And he went, oh, bleep. And it's like it clicked. But that's one of those things that nobody sits down and explains that that's the evolution. Nobody tells you that, you know, and because we all suffer from the curse of knowledge, right? We forget what it's like to not know what we know. So we don't, we don't share it. And for him, it was literally that simple. Once the light bulb came on and he realized, oh yeah, it's not that much different from when you are a son and you become a parent. And all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, that's me now. Like my crazy behavior is going to actually create the experiences my kids have, you know, you know, it's, you know, it's not like you take a test beforehand to make sure you're ready for that. Right. You just, you just take the kid home from the hospital and off you go. It's the same concept. And yet we don't provide the, we don't provide the, uh, we don't provide the, the sort of resources and the knowledge and, and the, 
experience and the coaching and the mentorship for people that we throw into those jobs. And so therefore it's not a surprise that that's where they struggle. The problem is typically we misdiagnose it. We see the leader struggling and we assume it's a tactical issue. We assume it's a knowledge issue. We don't think it's an emotional issue and we don't address it. We address it in the wrong way. So I think your point is spot on. I, I, I think that's the major struggle. And it's why if you take a really good talented software developer and you say, great, you're the best code writer I have on the team. Now go manage this team. You usually get a pretty lousy manager and then nobody's writing code anymore. And then that's a lose, lose scenario. So it's a completely different skill set. And I think as, as leaders, our number one of our number one responsibilities is to develop people on our teams and make those decisions and help people be successful. But if we're not recognizing those emotional pitfalls, um, then not surprisingly, you know, we, you know, we just throw people in the deep end and, and hope they hope they swim. You know, what you're both describing is some of the interesting narratives that we see in organizations. Some of them are implicit. We, we don't really, we just live into them. We don't really realize it, such as I continue to promote technical expertise to its highest level of incompetence. Right. Um, it's interesting to watch narratives change over time. Some of them are helpful in organizations, some of them not so much. So, so Rob, I'm curious for you first on this one, and I'll get to Michael. What's the conversation that you hear leaders and executives having all the time that you would like to reframe? Maybe I'll, maybe I'll actually make that stronger language. Reframe is, is, is gentle. Um, what's the conversation, to use stronger language, that you want leaders and executives to just stop having? You hear it. Everything inside you is just busting not to crawl out of your skin and say, stop that. That's the wrong way to think of it. Um, so what's the conversation that you want to see change that leaders and executives are having everywhere you see, Rob? Oh, man, Daniel. So I got two. Um, one is uh, I'll never forget a moment being in an office. I was with a, um, a company that every, everyone knows. And it was, uh, they wanted to build a succession planning process. So, and I asked, I, I'm kidding you not, Michael, Daniel. I asked them, tell me why. Like, why do you want a succession planning system across this organization? And, uh, and I, this, I couldn't believe the answer. Um, our CEO saw it on the cover of Inc. Magazine and said, we need to do that. So, and I just, uh, that was, that was the reason. So, which was not particularly compelling, if you know what I mean? Like, so why do we want to build up a, another generation of successors to come through the business was interesting. But then what was interesting was the CEO walked in a few minutes later and uh, I'm looking at this wall. I'll just, you know, it's one of those moments I'll never forget. So I'm looking at this wall upon which it was a giant whiteboard wall that uh, was written uh, every leader development program that the organization currently had in place. And uh, it was, uh, I'm, and it was, it represented millions and millions, and millions of dollars, like just blowing at this, you know, at this issue, the necessity for developing leaders, which is kind of cool, but here, here's me uh, like not helping myself uh, out and asking the provocative question. So the CEO walks in and I said, we met each other for the first time and we look at the wall and I said, uh, we talked about, so this is all leader development, things that are happening in the organization. And I said, so when you look at that wall, what do you see? And he said, I see noise. And uh, I mean, this is a lot of money, you know, being spent on training. It's like what you were describing, Michael. And I, and I said, 
okay, so it's noise. And I said, so you're a leader here. Do you use any of it? Does any of it in play in your life? And he said, no. And I, um, I was kind of, it's one of those moments, I know this happens all the time, but it's one of the reasons, and there's interesting research on this too, that one of the number one predictors that a colleague of, that we all know did this research uh, of, the, of, of a human resources in, initiative succeeding is senior management support. And we would go so far in our work is not to say support, but participation. Like if you're a leader in this and you're not using what you're doing, not only is it like, that's kind of seems silly, but it's also setting an example. Like, are you willing to open, open that door? That's one conversation. The other one, I wish I could stop that we try <laughs> in our work. And, and I think it's partially because, and it relates to one of the, um, one of the things that was in the top, that, that list of 10 research-based truths, you know, is, is uh, that answers reduce agility. Um, and, and so one of the things that I know you, Daniel, you and I hear oftentimes is the word should or should have and or, um, or get. And so let me, like the example is we've got to get our leaders to. Um, what we should, what we should be doing is this, what our leaders should be doing. And, and the joke for me is always that no one wants to be should of anything. It's not motivational. It kind of gets us nowhere. It's the same old conversation. And one, and we had a recently had an experience where we're working with a senior leader. He's going to get up in front of thousands of people and, and, and say, this is, this is, this is, this was like word for word. He said, I'm going to get up there and I'm going to tell them Everyone in this org, every leader in this organization should be developing other leaders. And we stopped and we said, can we just shift the narrative slightly? And it's going to be, it's just slight, but just slightly before you do this um, to a question. Um, and it, because you know what I mean, Michael, where it's so much talk about if we could just get people to, well, no one wants to be gotten to do anything as opposed to invited into the possibility that they can actually do part of it on their own. And so we, what, we, what we were nudging him toward was get up in front of those people and say, what would change in our organization if every person in this room was investing in the leaders around them? And, uh, and so that kind of what was cool was being able to shift just a couple of words and how it started to open up, you know, what psychologists would call like developmental agency. Like this idea that people across the organization could do it on their own. Now, what is also true, and then I'll, I'll stop. These are just a couple of things you made me think of, Daniel, when you're saying, like, what do you wish would stop is some of that language is that the change then takes time because what we found is that, that people within organizations, when they're not used to it, that will actually produce, like, like you were describing, Michael, a dissonance where people are like, I don't trust this. I've never seen this before, so I don't know how to trust it yet. And, and what we've seen over, like when, when organizations do this year after year for a couple of years, where people start to begin to say like, oh, I could, I do have the agency within me to actually do something and to learn something from my experience or otherwise. So those are the two things I, if I had to stop a couple of conversations, this would be it. Right. I'm going to hold for that then. I want to hear Michael's and I've got a question for the both of you on, on those two together. So Michael, what's the conversation you would like to shift or stop that you see leaders and executives having? Um, you know, it's it's along the same lines because I think, you know, Rob, you're spot on. In fact, one of the 10 things was purpose precedes execution. And it's the question of what, what are we trying to accomplish here? Hmm. You know, and what I've, what I've struggled with with HR, I have a love-hate relationship with HR despite, you know, it being my career choice. 
is too often HR is a sack of solutions in search of problems, as opposed to completely the other way around. What is it that we're trying to solve? You know, I was, I was working at, uh, at Microsoft. I'm going to give a shout out to a guy named Jeff McHenry, who, who was absolutely brilliant, a guy I worked with at Microsoft. And, and he came up with this approach around development, and uh, he called it pinpointing. I don't know if you ever, I don't know if you ever uh, got a copyright on it or whatever, but the concept is really fundamentally simple. I, I call it the Tom Sawyer effect, right? Remember when Tom Sawyer didn't want to paint the fence and he wanted to go fishing, so he told all the other kids, hey, no, I get to paint the fence, and then they wanted to paint the fence, and so then they painted the fence and he went fishing. It's that concept. What you do is very simple. Here are all the things we got to get done. And this is the real business things we have to accomplish. Launch this product, drive this change, get into these new markets, whatever that may be. These are real things. This is real stuff to do. And then here's a list of all our high potential people or people that we want to develop. And then we just match them up. They're, they're, what's so powerful about that is the primary driver is to, is to actually get this work done. The secondary benefit is the development of people enabling the work to get done. And I always think of, I think about it this way. I think about it as what I called, and I've used this term myself, it's kind of made it up. I call it bolt on processes. In other words, there's no economy of motion here. I'm doing my job and then I got to twist over here and do some HR thing. And then I go back here and do my job. That's how you end up with a laundry list of development things that don't do anything. What you do is say, if what I am positioning that this organization does for development does not fundamentally, clearly lead to the outcomes we are trying to get as a company, we shouldn't be doing them. Plain and simple. Because there is enough opportunity within what we are trying to accomplish to drive every aspect that we want to see. We want to see people develop. We want to see people engaged. We want to see people fulfill their careers. We want to see people treated with dignity and respect. We want to see people, we want to have diversity and inclusion. We want all of these things. These are incredibly important, but they have to be done within the context of what we're doing. Or there's no natural rhythm to get them done. There's no stickiness to it. It's, you know, you roll something out and, you know, I remember that one of those, I remember one of those experiences. I did a succession planning thing. And at the end of it, they're like, that's a great meeting. What do we do now? And they didn't do anything. And I'm like, what a complete waste of time. So if it's not specifically aligned around something that's real and something that you're trying to accomplish, it goes back, it, it dovetails, Purpose precedes execution, dovetails directly back into teachers, the ex experiences, the teacher. Those two things are intricately linked. And if you can line those two things up, you will actually get more of a benefit that you, than you even anticipated. But if they don't line up, you actually get less of a benefit out of either. And so I think what I would ask people a lot of times to do is, you know, one of the number one things I have to go in with a lot of small companies, I do consulting and I do uh, help startups and I do a bunch of, you know, I've worked in all different size companies. And a lot of times the issue is I spend as much time making sure we don't do something as I do doing something. Because it's not a matter of what we need to do as much as it's a matter of when. Too many, too many times people put things in place 
And I would, I work with a small company and, and, and the individual I knew, I ran into him on an airplane and he came out of a really large company. And so he said, look, uh, stuff's not working. Can you come over and help me out? So I went and I spent about an hour there. He had taken a model for a hundred thousand person company and put it in place for a 35 person company, which is the equivalent of shooting a chicken with a tank, right? It was such complete overkill. And it was a bonus structure that it took them a month to figure out what the bonus was for people. And so I come walking in the room, I'm looking at this thing going, you know, this looks like Einstein's theory of relativity. Like what? And I asked one question. I said, just out of curiosity, and I'm just going to pick a random person on this list, Susie, what's the total delta we're talking about in terms of money here? Like if Susie gets the maximum bonus or the, or the minimum bonus, what are we talking about? I'm just trying to get that. It was $500 on an annual basis. And I said, guys, I hate to tell you this because I'd like to give you some cool, sexy thing to do. But what I would do is I'd toss this entire thing out the window. I'd do it on the back of a napkin and I'd get back to work. Because you might need that complexity if you've got 10,000 people, if you've got all this, but you don't need it here. Solve the issue. Here's the other piece I would say, Rob, is that if you really look into often why these things are happening, they're not happening to produce an outcome. They are happening to protect me as a leader from having to have real conversations. Hmm. Hmm. Most policies that are not specifically compliant related or you know, how we do PTO time or whatever are designed so managers don't have to have real conversations. They can point to something, just fill this out or do this or whatever. And that's part of the challenge is that we need to get managers more engaged in the real conversations and not create all these processes or processes around them that actually detract from that. You know, there's, you know, the only, the thing that I loved about, I got spoiled working for GE early in my career was Jack Welch had these ideas and the ideas were to have a specific outcome. And then he went back and said, build me a process that gets this outcome at scale. But the purpose was already there. And then what people did is they said, hey, GE successful. Let's go take his ideas and let's go throw them into our, into our company. But they weren't focused on what outcomes they were trying to drive and therefore they didn't work. Mm. So I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this is the one thing I would do is say, time out, pump the brakes, stop putting processes in place get really clear. What are you trying to accomplish? What does that look like? And how do we get there? Because we might need this process. We might not need this process. We might be able to do it in the back of a napkin, or we might need even more than we had anticipated. But if we don't start with purpose, you know, it's, it's, you know, you're just shooting in the dark. So here's what I'm curious about. You both shared, I, I, you know, check, sign my name on the bottom. Let's, let's, let's go there. That that's the direction. I think we could all agree that if those type of things you both discussed are in place, we're going to see more purposeful execution, people engaging in different ways, inviting into the conversation and leaving, leading more productive, fulfilled organizations and lives. Here, here's a question I'm curious about for you, for you both, um, because I agree with what we all, we both shared, but I'm curious, where do you personally feel challenged to live up to that standard yourselves. 
Because I think it's one thing that to, to, to look at leaders and say, okay, if, if we could get this to happen, um, but part of the challenge becomes we even wrestle with those, those principles ourselves. And Michael even mentioned earlier, you know, even if you know what you're doing, you make the mistakes, you get back up, but, but it's not going to be perfect along the way. So where do you both f- feel challenged, I guess, and relate to the leaders who get stuck in some of those traps? I'll just answer really quickly. Um, The main reason I am challenged is that I have a tendency to go with what I know and draw on experiences that I'm more comfortable in executing. And therefore, my biggest miss is usually a misdiagnosis driven by habits driven by maybe a, a, a false sense of, I've seen this before, I know what the solution is. And then probably a little bit uh, around, look, I don't wanna take a, a completely you know, blue sky approach to this because it's hard. You know, I, may, I may not fully understand it. I may not fully understand the context. I may have to go build something I don't know how to build. I'm not aware of all the variables. It's easier to just go pull something off the shelf I've built in the past and I know works and try to kind of retrofit to make it fit the situation. But that's the, that's the tendency for me. And, and I think um, mm. that's where I, you know, that's where I start losing a little value to companies is, you know, it's all of us are like that, you know, we'll, we'll go with what we know. We'll go with what's familiar, you know, and guess what? everything starts looking familiar when you have a particular toolkit that you know how to apply. Mm. And I think that's, there's some goodness to that because there's a lot of science and there's a lot of things that, you know, have approaches that are tried and true and and work and they work for a reason, but there's also things that we're going to miss because we might've been a little too quick to grab something we were already familiar with. That's good, Michael. That's good. And I think others do too. How about you, Rob? Where do you feel personally challenged to live up to the standards that you outlined for leaders? I think it's similar. I wrote down um, avoiding my convictions, violating my convictions. Um, And what I meant, and then I wrote down after that, as you were talking, Michael, um, and being humorously ironic. I say humorously because I think it's almost (laughs) funny. It's like, you know what I mean? Where it's, I have these, but as, as even building um our organization and thinking like and i also wrote down practicing what i preach you know so what does it mean for us to be held accountable and practicing what we preach is one thing um the second thing is this and it's uh, it's it's fun listening to your your story michael and some of your thoughts because um i think one of when we were talking about like if we're gonna fix it it means we have to go after the hard places to go after in ourselves and in, in our, the systems and the way we think and stay in that learning space. And one of the examples, there are two things that came up as you, as I was thinking through what you were saying, and it's related to one of those, those top 10 also, the whole isn't conventional. And, um, and I think being unconventional can sound really cool on a book cover. You know what I mean? Like let's write an airport book and call it, I saw someone talking about, you know, from a zero to a hero and that sells, but it's like the whole process from going to zero to hero is kind of ugly at times. And it was, um, and so I, I remember, for example, when we were doing research inside the Boeing company, they committed to doing this 10 year longitudinal study of 120 leaders. And I had to, the privilege of just being a part of that team. And it was, I couldn't believe it. And, and as part of that, one of the things that emerged that was true to the research outside of, of aerospace 
um, incredible thing that they committed to was the experience of failures and mistakes and career setbacks. And we were creating a career path model where someone, it was when the internet was new, you know, and it was like, you could click on a topographical map of an experience and it would show you the competencies and lessons you would learn in a certain experience. It was just really cool work that was really formative for me to be a part of so that a manager and executive could click on something. So here was, we spent more time on this decision than most things was this, do we put failures and mistakes on the map? Do you know what I'm saying? So do we give a person an intentional pathway to, to say, I'm, I'm failing right now? And it was a tough decision because it's like, are we going to be real about what it means to lead that failures is going to. And so I, I, it's so funny. We fought so much about it. We had this team of like subject matter experts, like trying to make this decision about whether we would put it on the map. And I think something else you said, Michael, I think that has been a, a conviction of mine when it comes to that going against convention is like seeing what you, what is, what you can't see, what's difficult to see. And so the people that are drawn into IO psychology, typically, um, and by the way, in human resources as well, it's a lot of women and men have shied away from graduate school in general, but have, so we were, we were getting these high capacity women coming through the program. And so thinking, so I spent my career thinking about how to make an investment in the development of women. I've had to think about that and also realizing that like my investment has to run out. So I got to get surrounded by senior leader women who can model something I don't know how to model but one of the one of the pieces of that is and there's a lot of talk in culture right now I mean I've seen the posts on Instagram and other places where there's glass all over the floor have you seen these you know what I mean where it's like because we've seen people women being elevated into amazing roles right now what I think about Michael what you said is it controversial to talk about I don't know because I'm so I'm so amazed by that and excited but here's what I think is anyone thinking about what it means to make an intentional investment? I don't care whether they're men or women. And if those women are going to break that, they're going to have the same experience and let's not make the same mistake again, where so many senior leader people get to the end and they go, and they see that there was a, there was a different way. And they go, where was that when I was younger? You know? And so, because the reality is that no matter who steps into the, into these roles. And I think about this in the diversity and equity and inclusion space is like, when you were talking about, in some cases, we're putting, we put leaders in roles in such a critical space without line leader authority. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it, it does something to us. And I've seen people, men, women, uh, black and white, all, you know, it's like, I've seen people wrestle when they don't have that authority for actual, for an actual part of that line piece of the organization. So what I think is in terms of that, the thing I wrestle with, I wrestle with my own, how do I, how do I effectively help? What do I need to learn? And where do I need to stay open? But how do I also continue to fight for those people so that they don't have to experience what we did? <laughs> I hope that's, yeah. So to, to, to wrap us up, here's what I want to do. I want to do this rapid fire. So I'm the CEO. You've, con- you've both convinced me. I want to unleash the whole potential of my people where do I start? Give me a handhold. Give me one or two suggestions. What's the next step for me? Michael. Call Michael. Call Michael. Nice. <laughs> uh, number, one, Michael. It's really, it's, number one, it's really simple. Uh, what is it that we need to accomplish? And what are the gaps that, you know, I would start with this sort of three-dimensional um, gap analysis thing of define what success looks like in whatever period of time, 
Let's go backwards from there. Where are we now? What are the gaps? And let's try to solve those. You know, it could be a people gap. It could be a, an org structure gap. It could be a talent gap. It could be a, you know, a whole mindset shift. It could be a, a, a change in, in process. And guess what, uh, Mrs. CEO or Mr. CEO, it, it could be you have to change, right? So I don't know what the answer is, but I would start with what are we trying to accomplish, right? I, I, oftentimes, so funny, I get, I get interviewed for, for jobs all the time. And they'll ask me, well, what would you do if you came in here? And I'm like, what are you talking about? I have no idea. I, I don't know what your issues are, you know? And so I shouldn't have a whole strategy of what I'm going to do for you if I don't know what the issues are. So that's where I would start, Daniel, is let's build a plan that gets us to where we want to go. And then let's go look at what's getting in our way, um, where the gaps are, and let's try to solve them. It's good. It's good. Yeah, it is good. I would say one is uh, don't ask people to do anything you're not willing to do yourself. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that that's why vulnerability is taken off because when people see that you are learning, then all of a sudden they go like, oh, that person, he or she is learning. Maybe I could learn too. And the second thing is, and I hope this doesn't sound self-serving, but is put a system in place that invites people's narrative into and making a longer term investment in really creating, this is what my dream has been for years and creating high stretch, high development kinds of cultures. That's where agility comes from. And so putting, I don't, whatever system it's, it's in place where it's not just, I think so often leader development is a, is an airport seminar or it's bringing a speaker or it's put people in a box with one short assessment, as opposed to making a commitment to a long-term shift, in people's narrative to invite them into their own development and growth. Um, those are the two things that came to mind. That's good. And last question, Michael, you've joined us a number of Fridays for our wild conversation and you're a regular there. It's fun to see you and see the community connect with you and you connect with the community. Why is somebody who's listening to this, uh, why should they join us for that wild conversation Friday community? Ah, oh, that's an easy, uh, that's an easy pitch for you guys. Um, you know, there's two, there's two reasons. Number one, the content is good, right? We need to always be learning. You know, one of the most important things that we need to do is we need to unplug from our day to day, get out of the box, think differently, get challenged with different opinions, think about stuff in a way that we're not, uh, we're not thinking about every day and then plug back in. It, it serves a couple of purposes. Number one, it's energizing. It's, it's, uh, it gets you out of your ruts. If you're, if you're in those, um, you can learn from people, you can feel connected to people. Um, and you also feel like, you know, you're recognizing that, you know, I'm not terminally unique. You know, a lot of times we struggle with that. We're like, Oh, you know, nobody has the problems I have, whatever, you know, everybody has the problems we have. Right. So I think those things are all, those are all helpful. And what's really great about it is that the, the content that you guys take on, uh, you know, isn't simple. It's very complex. And I've not attended a single one of those yet where I haven't thought, you know, wow, that should have been like an hour longer than it was. Or, you know, man, Daniel, you keep pulling us back out of those breakouts, you know, way too quick. And, you know, but again, it gives you that it gives you that taste and anything that gets you out of your normal thinking is going to be part of your training the agility and the fluidity of your brain to capture information in a different way. So I don't think there's any downside. Um, it, it's been fantastic. You know, I've learned something from, for, in everyone. Um, and uh, it's been great. Awesome. I appreciate it. Gentlemen, it's been great to be with you. Thanks for joining this conversation. 
on reforming a reformation of HR or reforming how we think about it. Just some awesome things you shared, some great takeaways for those who are listening.